Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Yadav Salonkomer, the host of this channel, and today I'm here with Dr. Gabriel Levi to talk about his book, Beyond Heaven and Earth, A Cognitive Theory of Religion. Now, this book has been a fascinating book for me and also something which caught my attention because of uh, cognitive theory and also and you know how the book has been constructed by using works by Donald uh, Davidson. So I'm sure that uh, as we explore this uh, work and as we explore this book, uh, we will all be enriched by this wonderful work that Dr. Gabriel Levi has done. So let me straight away go into to the author himself and ask um, Dr. Levi, tell me something about yourself. Okay, uh, thanks for having me here, Tia. Uh, I'm happy to be here to talk to you about this and have a conversation. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, in terms of my background, I um, got a bachelor's degree in anthropology and religion from Dartmouth College in, in the States. And uh, there were some really amazing people um, working there in both those disciplines, um, really great teachers that I had there. And basically that kind of set my standpoint up for my future work. I, I, I consider myself a anthropologist of religion, basically. Um, but it's channeled through this Davidsonian approach that I'm sure we'll get to. Um, and then in grad school, I moved to California and took a PhD up at uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. And I also did uh, some years work at uh, Berkeley, which is the same uh, system, because that's where Davidson uh, was teaching at the time, towards the end of his career. I mean, he taught there his whole life, but he was uh, basically emeritus at that point. And uh, I started in 1999 in grad school, and that was basically the tail end of uh, 
critical theory and the influences of the great French post-structuralist uh, tradition. Not that that's finished, you know, at this point, but uh, an alternative was kind of creeping up in those years. And that was this cognitive approach, basically. And I was sympathetic to both uh, traditions, if you want to call it that. And that was due to this basically Davidsonian monistic approach that uh, doesn't discount the material level. Um, so I was, it caught my, my attention, this cognitive approach. And, and I moved to Denmark um, towards the end of writing my dissertation, which was on uh, biblical prophecy. And I got involved there with a lot of the first generation people working in the cognitive science of religion, uh, this like kind of subfield. Um, I guess it's, yeah, it, it's kind of a interdisciplinary subfield, this cognitive science of religion. But a lot of the, at the time, Denmark and especially Aarhus, were, which is a city in uh, Jutland of the, the continental part of Denmark, um, uh, a lot of people there were, that, that was kind of a hot spot for this uh, at the time for the Kagsai of religion, and it actually still is. Um, so the dissertation ended up being like basically a cognitive theory of biblical prophecy, if you want to call it that. Um, I was really interested in um, basically the debates around orality versus literacy, mostly coming out of anthropology. Um, so like the consequences of literacy basically as a technology. And I wanted to see how the, a cognitive approach would uh, intervene on that or what it could do for that debate. So it was basically about a question about media and how this affects religion. and. Uh, I was interested in how information, for lack of a better word, information uh, gets channeled uh, in religion. So I, it went from a kind of broad uh, use of images in religions, if you want to talk about the history of religions, to an explicit ban on uh, representations in Judaism. Uh, so my the first book kind of goes off from there, and it and it, it it takes up these same questions, but applies it kind of to the whole Jewish tradition. So not just biblical prophecy, but the rabbinic tradition, and and further on. But anyway, so then uh, after that, after about seven or eight years uh, in Denmark, I got the permanent job in Norway, uh, here in Trondheim, Norway, at, at NTNU, the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Uh, thank you very much. I think in your explanation, you have also talked about how you, you, might, you have come about uh, to this very book. So I think uh, that was also kind of fascinating to hear your intellectual journey in that sense. So that was quite interesting. So let's straight away go into the book itself and the discussion there. And uh, that is where, first of all, um, I would like to ask about um, your use of Donald Davidson's uh, an animalist monism. Now, 
I think initially you talk about this very aspect of metaphysics, why uh, metaphysics matters, then you discuss Donald Davidson's work. So can you elaborate more on this aspect? Yeah, sure. So basically, um, the the part that's nice about Davidson, uh, basically, <clears throat> that comes out of this anomalous monistic approach um, which has a lot of details to it that maybe we won't get into, but one of the core parts of it is that the, it prioritizes the intersubjective level as a point of departure, basically for making sense of human meaning, for lack of a better word, or um, semantics. As, as Davison calls it. So it prioritizes this level of intersubjectivity. Um, and that's that's kind of the, the focus or that's kind of the frame that Davidson gives for looking, for applying it to religion. Um, basically, it leads to, uh, in the book, I, I say it's similar to what people are today calling like a flat ontology. Uh, in the sense of um, that um, you kind of have to um, have a very kind of wide uh, view on what you accept as ontological reality. Um, I'm more inclined to go with uh, Quine. Uh, One of uh, Davidson's uh, mentors uh, was this guy, Willard Quine. And he he called this ontological swelling basically when he when he talked about it, um, it and that's because from an intersubjective perspective you you really don't prioritize either uh, the material or the mental. It you you have to find some way of of uh, of coming at these things uh, without prioritizing one or the other or thinking one comes first or the other comes first. And uh, yeah, so Davidson gives us a really nice uh, way to do that, Um, especially his notion of triangulation, as it's called. That's kind of the main metaphor of inner subjectivity in, in Davidson's work. But what Davidson doesn't do is he doesn't see the, the hard part here is if you are trying to stay at the inner subjective level, it's this basically is holistic level. What, what people call the like global supervenience of the mental level. Um, it, it makes it hard to explain how you, how a human mind could enter that level, like this, the intermediary points between the physical and the mental. Uh, basically, Davidson said those th- that couldn't be. We didn't have a vocabulary for for connecting those two kind of metaphysical vocabularies. Um, and what that means is basically he made no attempt, and basically no one in this Davidsonian tradition in in the study of religion does it of trying to account historically or even evolutionarily how you can go from what from basically a, a creature that doesn't you could say have language or doesn't have semantics to a creature that does so part of what i'm doing in the book is trying to 
give as best I can an evolutionary uh, story, an evolutionary account of that, uh, which is maybe it's impossible. I mean, a lot of people would say you can't, it's not really possible, but I, I mean, I think you can, you can improve the vocabulary in kind of trying to connect the dots. Uh, and a lot of in the book, I make the case that this form of cognition, cognitive science, inactive cognition, it's called the uh, inactive approach, uh, gives a lot of nice uh, uh, terms and nice theories for trying to connect those dots. That's uh, that's true. I mean, anonymous monism, in a sense, uh, um, is a philosophy of theorism in the sense where one doesn't collapse to the uh, other, and I think you, you are kind of you have kind of uh, expand, expounded it in um, proper way, and also at the same time your project is kind of clear in the book itself. So uh, you talk about this uh, triangulation where Davison talked about this one. So what what is this idea of triangulation? How does it work? So yeah, triangulation is. Um... Basically, it's a metaphor to describe how there can be content, how can there, there can be semantic content um, uh, without basically intermediaries, without representations. Um, and uh, I like the way uh, uh, that um, uh, one of the great interpreters, uh, students of... Uh, of um, Davidson puts it that uh, triangulation is a form of holistic externalist relationism. And basically the, the idea is um, in order for, uh, you, you could say meaning is created through an interaction between at least two people and the world they share. And the the meaning of any any communication between human beings is not in any one of those nodes of the triangle. That it's really a truly kind of interactivist picture of the way that meaning emerges in communication. Um, so uh, you can... Think of it as, uh, well, the classic example that uh, people often give is from, uh, it's, um, it, it connects to Davidson's uh, notion of radical interpretation. Um, and he basically borrowed that for also from Quine. But this famous example of Gava guy, I don't know if you've heard of it before. Any philosopher, analytic philosopher listening will have heard this many times, but um, so like if you are suddenly in some very strange place that you've never been before and you meet another person and, uh, a rabbit runs by and the, per the person says, gaffa guy to you, the way that you come to understand what that phrase actually means it is going to be some combinate some triangular uh, interaction going forward through time. Basically, you're going to try to triangulate uh, with that that person, and the more you triangulate between you and this other person, and that what you call a rabbit, the closer or 
you're going to get probably to some uh, form of understanding. Um, so it's it's basically a way to try to um, explain uh, the content of language without recourse to, like in a kind of um, pragmatist mode, you could call it as a form of pragmatism, and, and and without recourse to representations. That it's really through a kind of coordination and intercoordination with other people that we arrive at meaning um, as human beings. Yeah, I think that uh, concept, um, the, the clarification of the concept was uh, quite important because as we are going to explore uh, the chapters now, it will come into really handy when the listeners are going to the chapters and when we uh, talk about the chapters. So uh, first of all, you talk about this uh, semantics of religion, or the very essence and what religion is about. And you talk about, uh, I mean, you call it as a form of uh, genealogy of religion. So. How how do you understand the semantics of religion from the Davidsonian perspective? Yeah, I basically make the case that what we call religion is a a kind of fallout of our meaning and sense making practices more generally, and um, that that basically once you get to the level to this level holistic level of the mental that that's when religion emerges as well. Um, so p- part of the, this process of triangulating uh, for Davidson involves um, basically trying to match up truths and falsities uh, with the, the other person in the triangular interaction. And this isn't like truth and falsity in like the big T sense of like ultimate truth or something it's more like um basically in in this conversation you tia and i are having as in order to understand me you're basically constantly tracking your own kind of truth false metric uh and mine and trying to kind of bring them together Basically, in other words, you don't know what I mean until you know whether you think it's true or false would be maybe one very simplistic way to put it. Uh, And I'm basically in the book, I'm trying to focus in on the falsity part of that, because that's that's the interesting part when it comes to religion. It's the classic idea like everyone else's religion is false, you know, except mine. There's something about religion that like hinges, that like turns on this falsity issue. And I try to do a kind of natural uh, history. You could call it genealogy as well, I think, of falsity and misinformation and uh, and uh, try to connect religion to it in that way. Basically saying that religion is a form of, well, fictionalizing that the types of agents that we um, interact with uh, in fictional, in religious narratives are fictional. So like religion is a subclass of fiction, but at the same time, fictional agents are, are potentially real in the sense 
in it, this pragmatic sense that we've been getting at from this intersubjective level, you can say that these fictional agents are real. And th that opens the potential for them to be used in religions. So basically, uh, religion is a fallout of this, uh, of our ability to make sense of things around us. Um, and we will never get beyond that because in order to think, we need these fictions and we need falsities. Just in order to think, uh, we need these uh, to be there. Um, so there's a lot more to it than that, but uh, as you know in the book, but that's the basic idea. Yeah, and you explore deeply into this aspect of uh, fiction and their um, uh, religious agents. So uh, how does this fiction, in that sense, relate to reality, in that sense? Obviously, in anthropology, we have this notion that, you know, this ontological turn has come up with this notion of trying to understand reality. So how does this fictional narrative that the religion creates relate to this reality? So the case I'm making in the book is that the mental is as real as the physical from this holistic perspective you know also going back all the way to quine you can't you don't get to just you can't just pick individual sentences out of anyone's like entire kind of you could call it the like array of uh beliefs if we want to call it that you, you can't just you, you can't kind of just pick one and isolate that and, and say, well, this, this part of it isn't real. Like any, any kind of, any statement that someone makes has to be looked at in the context of the, their, basically their entire, um, all the things they ever would say. Um, but of course, so the way, um, uh, Mark Garner, who's a philosopher of religion, scholar of religion, calls it is uh, someone's uh, like basically in order to make sense of someone, you have to observe their total behavior. But we since we don't have access to someone's total behavior ever, it, this is always kind of pushed down the road. Um, but uh, so what what is real is real in this pragmatic sense of uh, what, what is going to, I guess, work, for lack of a better word, uh, in the long run for this person. Um, so uh, I guess I'm saying um, fictional, fictional things are real in, in many cases to people. Um, and uh, and um, that's not where our kind of uh, real, unreal, uh, that, that type of discourse, that, that's not where that belongs. It doesn't belong to, the, to that kind of uh, level. Um, so something, the example in the book, you know, that I'm kind of thinking about is like uh, um, someone like Mickey Mouse or, you know, the certain pop, popular cultural fictional agents. And uh, 
I don't see any reason why we can't consider those things real. Uh, and then the next question is, how do those things, how do those characters connect to religious characters? And uh, But cognitively and semantically, in terms of the sense making of these uh, agents, they're, they're just as real as any other type of agent, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah, and you also talk about where you say that uh, the distinction between fantasy and reality is something which is not in porn. Now, I want you to elaborate more on that. How how does this distinction happen in a person in a community then, if it is not in porn in a sense? Yeah, so I guess I talk about that most in this chapter on uh, on celebrity, the cult of celebrity, uh, chapter five, I think. Um, but um, I think uh, mostly we're taught to make that distinction. That mostly we um, we learn these things from our parents and peers uh, to make those distinctions between fantasy and reality, um, and uh, that there's actually that's not to say everything is cultural, because I think there is a kind of very immense kind of bedrock of shared, uh, we could call them universals, maybe that human beings share uh, across our entire species. Uh, so and but there so there, there are minimal kind of la- layer of things that we're born with. Um, like uh, here, I'm just thinking of Cecilia Hayes's book, uh, Cognitive Gadgets, which I really like, which she kind of makes that point where she she's doing something similar, trying to say that there's this kind of, uh, there, there are some things that we're born with, but for the most part, we acquire them through, we acquire kind of cultural gadgets over the course of our lifetime. And basically, this I would put this distinction uh, between fantasy and reality into that category. That it's something we are trained to uh, to do by by the culture that we're born in. Um, and uh, and uh, I think um, there's there's been a tendency like in uh, or, um, you know, because I guess, uh, you know, anthropology and the study of religion originated mostly in Europe to kind of go out into the world and, uh, you know, uh, kind of think of our own uh, fantasy reality uh, distinction as the natural one and not and kind of uh, not recognize that it could be shaped in different ways in other cultures. On chapter three, you talk about information. Uh, now, um, I wanted you to elaborate more on this one, where, you know, in terms of the uh, animalist monism, taking Davidson's point, and, you know, in terms of how you understand evolutionary, how information gets generated and used. So uh, can you elaborate more on this aspect? Yeah, that's a... Uh, Really, that's the toughest, uh, strangest chapter. I mean, I know it's a strange book all around, but that that, that was particularly difficult one. 
because that's the one where I'm trying to do that thing that we started the, the talk with, which is try to make these kind of, uh, in a sense, paradoxical bridges between what, what I'm calling like natural information and the semantic level of information, if you want to call it that. I mean, uh, I have a close academic friend who's very suspicious of this idea of information. And uh, I think it's uh, for, I am too, um, but I just don't really see a way around it because I'm trying to tell this um, natural evolutionary story about how we got to this semantic level, which doesn't isn't about information. This is about sense-making and meaning. Uh, and uh, that's different than just information, like input-output representations. Um, so, uh, but, but we had to get there somehow. And if you look at, for example, other animals, it's hard not to describe their communication systems using this concept of information. So I basically, I try to describe how basically the natural history of information. Um, and it had, it had to emerge at the same time, basically, as life itself, as far as I can see. Um, I mean, uh, you could say information was radically reorganized when you had the first organisms on the planet. Um, I mean, DNA, for example, is a type of information, for lack of a better word. Um, so information goes all the way back to that point, And I'm trying to trace it up as far close as we can get to semantic, this global supervenience level of semantics um, that can't, can't be reduced to uh, the physical, and it can't be reduced to just information, that there's more to it than that, because it involves this layer of triangulation. But but what are the pieces? What are the pieces that uh, that are going to go into it, uh, th that go into that, uh, um, that robust notion of triangulation? Um, that's kind of what that, that chapter is trying to do. Um, and um, the idea is basically for, for this idea of an intersubjective level of human language to work, um, in a sense, for human beings to get there, it already had to be there before, in some sense, which, which is what makes this argument sound really trippy and weird and almost theological, you can avoid those things. Uh, one way around it is the way I'm, I'm going, just to say that there was a kind of um, holistic structure already set in place that human beings entered. Uh, other scholars have made this point, like Terence Deacon and uh, um, about language and Turner uh, about, uh, he, he argued that the narratives have that function or stories, but that that kind of uh, is what um, kind of uh, is the 
platform that human beings could enter uh, to get to this level of semantics. Um, but uh, again, there's a good case to be made that we actually don't have the right bridging type of language to make these leaps. Um, I like, as I said, the the um, an active approach uh, to this question and also to information because it, it makes this mind-life uh, continuity principle, as it's called, which basically says that, uh, as I read it, they might read it differently, that if you're going to explain basically life itself, the origins of life, that already requires a certain metaphysic, metaphysical uh, apparatus. Like they have ideas like uh, autopoiesis and uh, operational closure and needful freedom. Um, these are so like uh, that uh, to account for life, you're going to need these kind of overarching principles that are already there. And um, something like that is going to also be part of the explanation for how we enter into this uh, intersubjective level, to, to keep it short. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yes um yeah in chapter four you talk about uh, language and thought now our language have to you know uh, represent something and our thought have to signify a certain aspect of the reality in that sense and you you talk about this uh, where language as an uh, improvised triangular interaction now i think in in terms of uh, how uh, language and thought works and how it is understood in the Davidsonian perspective and how you explore. Can you expand more on this very aspect of a language and thought in that sense? Yeah, so that's uh, that chapter, it starts with this uh, really interesting uh, experiment that uh, Stanislav Dehane and his colleagues did, and he's basically the world expert on uh, the neuroscience of uh, literacy, um, and he's also interested in mathematics, uh, the neuroscience of mathematics. Um, and um, it turns out that uh, basically learning how to do math the way we do it here in the West, uh, or probably now throughout the world, but, uh, but uh, this uh, mathematical... Uh, the, the mathematical theories that we use in the West 
that uh, it actually changes how we conceive of numbers. Um, it 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 uh, it shapes how we understand how numbers relate to one another. Um, the 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 reason that's in there is because the, that chapter I'm trying to make the case that um, it, our education systems are what uh, really shape our minds, uh, and they have these radical uh, consequences in terms of how they shape our minds. That it can be so fundamental that it it changes the way that we think of that numbers relate to one another. Um, and the idea is like math, mathematical concepts, this also goes back to Quine as well, are just like all those other concepts, like uh, they're also uh, no more real or less real than, uh, as Quine says, the gods of Homer. They're like these theoretical posits. Um, so they also, um, they also kind of belong to this like inner subjective level that we're talking about. Um, and, um, and, uh, that, that's, um, that, that's what I, that from there I, I tried to, I, I think this is kind of what this, uh, ancient medieval text that I look at in that chapter is, uh, after basically this text called the Sefer Yitzirah, that uh, that this is the kind of uh, th this is what they're tripping out on in that text is uh, the relation between basically these relatively recently discovered uh, mathematical tools, uh, their own minds, and the cosmos basically. The, these three that the relation between these three things is what they're tripping out on to a very large extent to make it more concrete in the sense I, I wanted to expand it in the sense of this one where it's like the the way we describe nature from let's say the from the physical point of view say uh, for example some people say that you know the nature is written down in the language of mathematics, something like that, right? But then again, the way we, as human people, describe nature is in a is in a very in a, in a social manner. It's very different in a way how how we describe it. So how how does these two come together in the sense of the physical description and the mental description of the natural world or the nature? How how does these two interact? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I see. I see what you mean. Yeah, so um, I, I guess what that chapter is, is it's kind of trying to enter that, um, that paradox that, I, that the third chapter is kind of setting up um, between these two different levels of natural information and semantic holism. Um, but, and just based on what you said, it's nice to get that feedback from you uh, and uh, so um, it is making a kind of case for some kind of uh, neutral space if you want to call Davidson's form of monism neutral monism like James or you know anomos monism but some some I guess third space or maybe there's more than three 
but some some something that's not neither uh, mental nor physical. Um, and I agree. So that's kind of the idea of anomalous monism, just to put it out there, that there are these two vocabularies, irreducible, irreconcilable vocabularies for describing, uh, I don't know, nature or the universe or however you want to put it. There's the, this physical anomalous vocabulary, which math is uh, often very good at describing, although there are also very weird types of math that exist. And the uh, mental, which is uh, the, um, we, w when we want to basically try to understand other people, other persons, we need to attribute mental states to them. And uh, there's no, that there's, uh, there's no bridging between those two uh, domains is basically the point of anomalous monism. And uh, so I, that, that's, um, that chapter is, uh, it's a experimental in the sense of it's trying to do both at the same time without kind of reducing them to each other. So it's kind of a, a pilot study or like a experimental projection of the theory into some religious text, into interpreting some religious text. Yeah, um, that, that's that's quite interesting. And I think your description now, uh, I mean, your analysis make it more clear in that sense. Uh, so now, if, I mean, tripling down to from your theoretical discussion to the point where you talk about, you know, the media and how today's celebrities has become the new superhero agents. Uh, now, uh, how does it work the, how does the agent of media work and you know how does celebrity become the new superhero agent yeah so yeah these three la the three final chapters are are meant to be a kind of application of the theory um and it's trying to draw some strings back to the chapter on fiction um and uh basically uh, make the case that um, modern forms of media, I'm sure I'm not the only one to say this, but have been very good at something very specific and that in terms of the context of the book, and that is manipulating light. Um, and there I'm, I'm talking literally about light because that that's very much what all these... Uh, I don't know, visual regimes uh, that we have, uh, that we're very focused on. This was a trend that kind of started, you know, already with literacy. That's kind of one of the points uh, of, the, of the first book that I wrote. So like uh, you could say literate, that letters, the lit literal word is, is one way to manipulate light. Uh, there's a famous uh, like uh, Talmudic or Midrashic idea that the Torah is like black fire on white fire. Um, and um, that's so a, a letter is a manipulation of light uh, between, you know, contrasts of light and dark, obviously. And um, this is just kind of expanding that or it's kind of like we, we seem to we seem to be moving out of that kind of 
if there was a kind of dominance of literacy or the literal word, like with Protestantism, there's been an argument about that. We seem to be moving out of that now. Things have kind of exploded and uh, the, the, the new technology seems to be just an um, insanely powerful way to manipulate light. So there's a lot of kind of playing on with the light metaphors, if we want to call it that. So like the idea that uh, that uh, the night sky was basically our, the, our original extended cognition, if you want to put things that way. Like I, I find it hard to believe that uh, hominids and our other ancestors spending millions of years staring up at a night sky that isn't doesn't have a lot of light pollution, that they wouldn't uh, utilize the patterns that are there and aren't there to um, to coordinate their lives, to tell stories and those types of things. So I'm playing on that idea. And also on the idea of just celebrities as stars is, you know, the, the obvious one, divinities as related to stars and light. So I'm kind of making, it's a case about media uh, and, um, and a kind of re-channeling of information into the, this, this kind of configuration of the cult of celebrity. Yeah, it's interesting how how you have related the media to the very uh, idea and construction of the divinities in that sense. I mean, uh, a very interesting chapter in that sense. So coming to the last chapter, and I think since our time is also running up, let this be the last question in that sense. And you talk about here, you talk about intimacy, intersubjectivity, and intimacy. And I think information is not just information, but also also inter- information is not just you know used in the in the subjectivity, but then. You also talk about intimacy in the sense. So how how does intimacy comes into the picture in terms of the uh, you know the uh, this is that you are talking about? Yeah, yeah. So this is um, I think also a kind of a risky like chapter. Um, I'm basically I'm it's partly like being critical of Davidson uh, because I mean I I'm. Obviously, I kind of want to say Davidson is right about everything, but but I guess he's not, and I guess there are some things left out. And one of them is um, that really, I mean, uh, there's more to like triangulation than just kind of uh, attribution of like mental states, like uh, propositional attitudes, like uh, I don't know beliefs and. Uh, wishes and uh, and such. Um, so I I kind of uh, I play on the fact that Davidson uh, his that his third wife um, Marcia Cavell, who was this brilliant scholar and of psychoanalysis, the kind of mutual influence that they had on each other's intellectual lives um, and. Uh, Basically, after he met her, he st- I think he started to recognize that uh, the role more of what, I guess you could say, emotions play in the intersubjective interaction 
Um, and um, and um, she also was influenced by his work, seeing like therapy more as like a triangular interaction. But um, so I'm I'm basically saying that kind of intimacy is something that's left out of a Davidsonian account. That's partly because it it again, if you set up the point of departure at this level of inner subjectivity, you still have to account for subjectivity and objectivity. And, and Davidson did. He just thought that subjectivity and objectivity were basically derivative and like dependent on intersubjectivity. But he still thought that you had to make sense of those things. He, that's why he has this book, uh, one of his famous collection of volumes called Subjectivity, Intersubjectivity, Objectivity. Those are what he calls the three, I guess, domains of knowledge or something about that, like that. But anyway, so subjectivity is an extremely interesting thing to look at in relation to intersubjectivity, and that's really what that chapter is trying to do. Um, and in the process, I talk about uh, Marshall Rosenberg's ideas about nonviolent communication, uh, also going in ways that directions that Davidson didn't go, like what about the ethics of communication and triangulation? So maybe like uh, trying to kind of think a little, push Davidson a little, uh, and but still within that framework is basically what, what that chapter is trying to do. Yeah, um, thank you very much for that one. Is there anything that you want to uh, say uh, about the book, which uh, I mean, we have missed out in the conversation or I haven't asked? Well, there's so many like moving pieces and parts to the book. It's kind of, Hard to say. I think we we did a really. Uh, I think we covered a lot of um, the the most important parts about it. Um, I mean, one thing is I'm trying to make the case that basically we need to be more serious about incorporating evolutionary and cognitive approaches into the humanities um, in ways that uh, take seriously this the irreducibility of a lot of the stuff we study as humanists. But I think that doesn't mean we just can just turn a blind eye to it. And I also think that people in the harder sciences and the cognitive sciences need to you you know need to be more appreciative of the humanities and the kinds of stuff we do in the humanities uh, because um, there's such a rich vast richness outside of uh, this small kind of uh, it's basically you know a western european box that a lot of cognitive science and the hard sciences look at things i don't know if things would be different if we if we took other perspectives into consideration more, but I think it's worth thinking about and worth pursuing. So that's kind of the the undertext of the book is trying to get us out of this like cultural war ideas between the sciences and this more of like a, I don't know if it's Humboldt or it's like some kind of vision that sees 
more conversation taking place across. Yeah. And that is where your idea of why metaphysics matters comes in, where both of the discipline can come to a terms of where we are coming from. And that is where we can have conversation together. Thank you for such a wonderful conversation, Dr. Levy. Is there any project that you are currently working on? And also, if people want to get in touch with you regarding your work, how do people get in touch with you? Yeah. You could just Google my name and you'll find me or on Twitter, Gabriel Levy one at Gabriel Levy one. So I, I've been on paternity leave uh, last year. So uh, just after the book was published. So I'm kind of just trying to gear up for the, whatever the next project is going to be. Uh, I think I want to keep going a bit in this direction about fiction and storytelling. And I also want to pick up some more pieces from the book. Like I had meant to do more on the Sefer Yitzirah, like a much deeper kind of dive into that text, it's, but it's insanely hard. So I didn't, I don't think I managed fully that that would be something. I also wanted to have a chapter on politics and power uh, because I think there are implications about politics in this approach, uh, especially about metaphysics and uh, theories about um, human nature, if you want to call it that, uh, have implications about politics. And then uh, I want to continue on this theme about agency, which I guess we didn't get to that much. But um, uh, yeah, we, we have a network here at, at NTNU that's going to be researching that uh, action and agency and interaction is the idea there. But yeah, I'm, I'm just basically taking a breath right now after uh, my paternity leave and then, then seeing what, what's going to come from here. Yes. Thank you very much, Dr. Gabriel Levy. And I'm sure um, to the listeners, I'm sure you'll all chip in in this very conversation that is flowing on through this very book and once again i thank dr levy for being here and uh, thank you very much and take care yeah thanks for having me see you take care with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.